Goody camp blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. Never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front. These are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're talking about Freddy vs. Jason, the final movie in our Friday the 13th retrospective. This is Brock. Stuart from L.A. And Arnie, the man of your dreams. <laughs> You've been waiting 11 movies to say that, haven't you? <laughs> well, this movie was something a little bit different and something people have been waiting for for quite some time when our friend Jason Voorhees goes up against the master Freddy Krueger. And this is a really fun movie for me because I am the noob in this series. I am the guy who's never seen the Friday the 13th movies before. And just like the Friday the 13th movies... I've only seen the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. So for me to experience full-on Freddy was a real joy. It's the first time I've ever done that. He was a really fun character. You know, if you have never seen the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and I'm sure when we do our retrospective next year for Nightmare, we'll go through this. But I think the best thing to do would be watch part one, watch part three, and then watch this Freddy versus Jason and skip all the dreck in between. Really? Well, not really, but mostly. I agree. I think that the Freddy that we see here was the Freddy they came up with in part three. And uh, if you only saw the original Nightmare on Elm Street, that, yes. was a, that, that was a more classically horrific version. He ends up becoming uh, a Borscht Belt stand-up comedian. I think in part six, he's like Uncle Milty. He's like putting on drag. <laughs> and it's, it's really, it became absurd. Without going but, into too much of it, Brock, to sum it up, in part six... He does Wile E. Coyote pushing a bed of spikes out for someone to fall under. He does the witch from The Wizard of Oz saying, I'll get you my pretty and your little soul too. And then he kills someone with a Nintendo Power Glove. Okay. It's over the top. Yeah, he went into a realm he shouldn't have. And this was a bringing back of an evil, nasty, scary Freddy, and this was much needed for the Nightmare on Elm Street series as it was for the Friday the 13th series, which had jettisoned itself to deep space when last we saw it. Well, what's interesting about this Freddy Krueger character and the scenes with Freddy Krueger in them is that I could really see that series as a horror series because in the beginning of this movie, thankfully, there's a voiceover. Freddy gives us a recap of who he is and why he has no power, and they had shown clips some of them with some really cheesy-looking special effects, I have to say. But it really helped me catch up on who this guy is, what has gone on before, and why he's in the predicament he's in now. I was really thankful they did that. And on top of that, they also do the same thing for Jason, but they work it into the plot. So anyone who doesn't know Jason gets the benefit also. So I thought this movie really started off strongly in catching up people like myself who may just be having a casual acquaintance with these kind of characters. 
my thinking is, and I'm sure this is something that will be brought up throughout this conversation repeatedly, did they really combine the chocolate and the peanut butter well enough to make a perfect Reese's peanut butter cup of a movie? Or is this one movie with the other cameoing? I think the opening kind of sets it up that this is a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 7, if you will, taking Wes Craven's new nightmare out of it. And Jason is a new character in that series because we're setting up Freddy right from the get-go. But Jason is a character, like you say, we find out about him throughout the entire movie. So it's more like we have to know who Freddy is. And because of that, they're going to, for all the Friday the 13th fans who might not have seen him, we're going to remind you about all of Freddy. Jason is not as vital to know in this series. You just need to know about Jason, what everyone knows about Jason. He kills people dead. Let's be clear. This is a Nightmare on Elm Street movie with Jason in it. It is a New Line picture, and New Line is known around town as the house that Freddy built. Its whole reputation is built on the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and that's the formula that we really follow here. That said, do I think that they honor Friday the 13th, and do I think they get Jason right? I, I really do. I feel like they do bring it in, and right from the get-go, right from the when we see the uh, New Line logo and we hear the piano tune from Nightmare on Elm Street followed up by the very so nice. Awesome. It is, uh, so it is awesome. combining two things that should not mix. Uh, literally fire and water swirling around, and somehow it coheres. Well said, Stuart. Well said. I must say, though, while Stuart and I are in agreement, this is a Nightmare on Elm Street movie with Jason as the guest star. Jason gets the body count. By my recollection, Freddy kills one person this whole movie. Jason kills surprising. a ton. It's surprising how little uh, Freddy gets away with actually doing himself. But that is sort of the premise of it. And can you walk me through this? Because it's pretty thin, and maybe I missed something. But we're expected to buy the premise here is that Freddy has been forgotten and thus cannot return to children's dreams because they don't know who he is. So he is going to drum up a PR campaign (laughs) using Jason. How does that work? (laughs) This is something that actually goes back to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1. And that is that Freddy's power comes from people being afraid of him. And at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1, they defeat Freddy by just saying, you're shit, and Heather Langenkamp turns her back on Freddy, and once she's no longer afraid of him, he's gone. And so the way set up in the very first movie, the way Freddy exists, is through the fear. And as long as people fear him, he grows stronger, and the less people fear him, He grows weaker. So in this movie, apparently after part six, when Freddy's daughter sent him to hell, they have created their own little hush campaign in Springwood, Ohio, home of Freddy Krueger. That's Springwood, Ohio, so that nobody remembers Freddy and anyone who remembers him gets shuttled off to a mental hospital and given hypnosil, which is a drug from Nightmare on Elm Street part three that prevents you from dreaming. So that way, Freddy can't appear in your dreams and make you scared, and it just makes you think you're crazy instead. All very nice. I I like the conspiracy there. Okay, um, help me out here. (laughs) Okay, first couple things happen right there, and I need clarification. First of all, Freddy Krueger can only hurt teenagers in their dreams. If you turn over 18, he can't kill adults. 
Well, his rules are very vague. He, at one point, materializes in the real world as a skeleton, and at another point, materializes in the real world by possessing a 17-year-old boy. But primarily, he seems to traumatize the upperclassmen of the high school set. Okay. And the second thing is the hypnosil is a callback. I thought the name of the pill, hypnosil, was stupid as hell. And I also thought wake aid in the medicine cabinet later in the movie was like, seriously, generic wake aid? You couldn't get the name brand stuff? That's, again, but, something they've done in almost every Nightmare on Elm Street movie, though. It's had, like, no-dose or wake okay. aid or something All like right. that. So let's get into the movie, shall we? We start off with Jason. <laughs> Jason sees his mom. Not played has, by Betsy Palmer this time. They couldn't meet her asking price. But her mom, his mom has aged since she's died. They couldn't get the woman who's the age of the woman in 1980. I don't know. I think this woman actually bore more than a passing resemblance to Betsy Palmer. And the fact that she was older, notwithstanding, if they'd gotten Betsy Palmer, she'd still be 20 years older. Fine. Why don't you get a person who's 20 years younger? Because to me, I couldn't get past the point that Jason seeing her mom age when she's dead. But I thought it was actually Betsy Palmer. I didn't even look it up. And it wasn't, huh? It looked just like her. No, so, no. Overall, I thought the acting in this movie was back on par with the regular Friday the 13th movie acting. I never thought I hated everyone on screen, practically. It is a drawback of the film. Uh, that while they get Freddy right and they get Jason right, they don't get the kids right. But Mm -hmm. that's my beef Mm -hmm. with it. I actually disagree with you. I think these are some of the best and most realistic kids in the series. Well, they're more modern. I still don't like them. (laughs) Well, you don't (laughs) hang out at high schools either, thank God, because that would just be weird. But I think that they were well-written. I think that they were fairly well-acted, and I I went with it. I, I liked these characters. I liked the characters, too, and I liked that I cared about some of them, which was nice for a change. I also thought, from right off the bat, that this movie's premise really worked for me. And I thought it was really clever how they integrated the two characters together of Freddy and Jason, and how Freddy needed Jason. I thought it was a brilliant way to bring them in and, for lack of a better word, make it believable. I agree 100%. I know Stuart has read, and I have also read, some of the scripts that weren't made. I believe they spent something like $6 million hiring different people to write different scripts to try to bring these two characters together. And having read some of those scripts, it could have been done wrong so many ways, and this script got it right. And that has to happen. You have to go with the premise of why one is in the other's world. Because if you don't buy that, the whole movie's going to sink. And they did it really well. It was what they had to do, and they did. Well, again, that was the question I asked. How exactly is Jason going to drum up press for Freddy? It was shown in the movie that when all of Jason's killings start happening, they don't think it's Jason. Jason hasn't been around for a while because he went to hell in part nine. Freddy brings him back from hell in a very cool resurrection scene at the beginning. It was one of Jason's best resurrections ever. And when he starts doing the killings, they don't think it's Jason. They think it's Freddy. People start becoming afraid of Freddy. And it's Freddy's like a jalopy that's out of gas. When people become afraid, Freddy gets stronger. Okay. Now, the whole premise that fails, I guess, is that 
people are going to see Jason. Jason is not the invisible man. He is quite a healthy presence. And so then when they find out, oh, it wasn't Freddy, it was Jason, would he then lose his power again? But I guess by that point, he would have been established in dreams and continuing his rampaging ways. Yes. And to get to that point of Freddy needing power, Jason has some really fun kills. The first kill he does was that kid on the bed, and then he folds the kid up in the bed after that. And I said to myself, what an overkill. And then the next one was really fun. Well, on the bed one, did you notice that it changed Jason's M.O.? Because Jason usually stabs once and walks away. Jason right. went psycho, and I mean the movie, to again reference psycho. And he's stabbing and stabbing and stabbing until the boy's intestines are pouring through the bed. Oh, I thought it was sexual in reference. I mean, it looked like he was he was doing him. Oh. I didn't get that at all. I didn't get that at all. No, no, look at the thrust. And I'm not trying to imply <laughs> sexual orientation here. I'm just saying that they set up a scene in which a guy is demanding... He's, he's very uh, aggressive and demanding in bed and when, when he can be touched and when he can't. And Jason comes and literally fucks him. Well, not literally. But all right. I didn't see that at all. I did not get that at all. Go back that, to the but... tape. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> One thing I want to say about this, Jason, is this is the first movie since part six where they did not have Kane Hodder as Jason. They brought in a new guy. And there's a reason for that, I believe. There's a few. Primarily, it was the director didn't like Kane's body type. He wanted somebody who was less bulky. And I think it works because this is a different kind of Jason. Jason Resurrected is faster and leaner and... I think he's more well-poised because I've seen in real life Kane Hodder, and the man's like a refrigerator. Mm. And he's just big. He's like a football player. He's really big. And this guy, he's tall. He's extraordinarily tall, like six foot something. But he's not the fridge. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I think it works because of what you just said earlier. His MO is different. That Throughout the whole movie... Jason's M.O. is completely different, yet we buy it's Jason 100%. Like, later in the movie, they go to that rave in the cornfield. Jason just starts slicing people left and right for no reason. He, we, first of all, we've never seen Jason in a crowd of people before and start killing people. Like, Manhattan, when he went to Manhattan in Part 8, he only went after the people he wanted to go after and left everyone else alone, which I thought was weird. Here we see him actually go for it and start slicing anyone who steps in his way in that rave scene. And I was thinking to myself, that makes total sense to me. It's a bunch of teenagers. Why wouldn't he kill them? But it was just weird to see Jason go to town like that. I but thought anyway. the rave scene, if we're talking about that, was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, that great. was great. They set Jason on fire, which shows why, in case of the zombie apocalypse, you never set zombies on fire because then you have a fire-breathing zombie chasing after you. With a flaming machete. How about that flaming machete when he throws the machete? Holy cow, is that cool. I do have a the question. imagery is really effective uh, in, in much of this movie, and I want to credit Rana Yu with this because... He is a. He comes from uh, the Chinese action realm, and you get that influence. He's done horror movies and action movies, and sometimes horror action movies. And he's perfect for this because there's a lot of wire foo involved in this movie, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of uh, things that straddle humor and horror. And he just gets it right. That's true. I never thought anyone could make a good child's play movie, and his Bride of Chucky, out of the five Chucky movies, is the only good one. Oh, I've never seen those. Oh, we'll have to do a series. 
<laughs> so Jason's second kill was Blake, the friend Blake who escaped the first night. And on the porch, his dad has his head just fall off. It was really funny. But the funniest part of all was when he sees Jason there and his, his dad's head is in his hands. When Jason comes up with a machete, he tries to block Jason's machete with his dad's head. It was brilliant. I love that because when the head falls off, it's like a geyser of blood. Yeah, it was it fantastic. Was, I love that death. That one. That was when I first saw this movie. Opening night in theaters, I first saw this movie. That kill made me realize, oh, this is the shit. This movie rocks. And talk about the humor here. We were talking last time about the humor in the movie for Jason X. Well, I think this movie certainly has the humor element, but it also has the spooky element and the horror element, and you really get an idea of the menace of this guy. It works on so many levels. It's like they're having fun with this thing, but still taking it seriously, you know? I dare say, though, all of the horror in this movie, and there are some horrific scenes, all of it comes from Freddy. Jason is action here. He's again the Terminator, like we said in part 10. And this movie ends up as an action movie at the end, or possibly even a WWE pay-per-view bout. But (laughs) when there's horror, it's Freddy. And that goes back to what I said. You know, we're not going into Freddy too deep, but Freddy kills a little girl in this movie. In Seven Nightmare on Elm Street, we never saw him kill a little girl. And Freddy about molests the main actress and tortures her when there's something scary freddy's there and i'm gonna make a case here i think that we are being asked to root for jason in this movie i think freddy is the the menace they even designed the makeup that he looks more like a devil his his ears are pointed his eyes are more red and there's just a flare to his his teeth are sharp their fangs mm-hmm. um it, we're meant to think of him while still humorous, I think we're supposed to think of him as the antagonist, as the puppet master, as the real menace. Jason is innocent. At the end, he even he shrivels up for a while in his childlike form, and we see that he's being manipulated to do things, that he's just impelled to do his killing because it's what he thinks his mom wants for him. And he's an innocent victim uh, of others. And so, in some ways, I feel like uh, it's, it's definitely stacked so that we are rooting for Jason. And I think part of the reason is because I didn't really like the main actors. I couldn't root for them. I don't care whether they live or die. (laughs) Well, is it possible? This is something I wanted to ask you guys. I agree. Jason's the hero because they make him up as this victim. But we've seen him kill hundreds of people over the past few weeks. And he kills 18 at least in this movie alone. Can he be sympathetic? Real-life morality does not apply in horror movies. We like killers and maniacs and monsters in horror movies. And yes, I think he is sympathetic, particularly that they spend so much time with Freddy at one point has, uh, has gotten into Jason's mind and really turned him into a sobbing child and, and really is psychologically torturing him and sticking his, uh, his blades into his head and all of that. It really felt like we are to feel sorry for Jason here. And indeed, he's much more sympathetic because he's kind of a simpleton. We think of Jason here as really someone that is being taken advantage. But if you're rooting for a mass murderer or serial killer, I guess is the better term, isn't Freddy still the more charismatic one versus the deformed mute? 
Well, wait a second. Now, we have many movies where we root for the bad guys as far back as I can remember. I mean, you have, go back in the 60s, you have, late 60s, you have Bonnie and Clyde, and you have Bush and Sundance. You mean you have Pulp Fiction in the 90s? You're rooting for these bad guys. So, in this case, as Stewart said, you really aren't supposed to put that sort of thing in horror movies. But I see your point. But I wasn't really rooting for Jason. I was just waiting for them to face off. You know, so I don't know if I was rooting for him. I certainly wasn't rooting for the girl, but I didn't want her to die either. Like, I liked the character. I liked the idea of what they were doing, but the execution there was weird. I just felt at least they had some characters there, again, that we were at least trying to make us care for. And, you know, I do feel like I wish I could come up with a better uh, metaphor, but this movie is like a whore. It's slowly teasing you and seducing you for the first 45 minutes until finally we get to the face-off. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's excellently paced. They get everything in from both movies. They, they go to Elm Street, they go to Crystal Lake, and they, you know, we get the, the girls jumping rope singing the Freddy song. We, we really get it all. They, they get it all in, and I was afraid that it would be bogged down with exposition. There was only one scene that I felt like, oh boy, they're just hitting us with the characters trying to uh, figure it all out. And it was the scene where the cop comes to the kids. The cop um, yeah. is played by uh, the crazy guy from Dead Man on Campus, by the way. Okay. I'm a fan don't, of that Don't even really know that movie. <laughs> okay. it, it, it made me change my mind on Mark Paul Gosselaar's acting ability. Wow. wow that's, that's I don't know that I so. want to change my mind on his acting ability. <laughs> I like disliking him. Um, but wow. anyway, there's a, there's a scene where they really do sit there and they almost pull out of thin air how they're going to fight him and what's happening and what they're going to do. And I was afraid the whole movie was going to be that. But really, it's only about five minutes of exposition. And then the rest of it is just really streamlined pulp. It's a real uh, distillation of the best of both series. And somehow... I marvel at their ability to meld them into some kind of alloy. I I agree. It's like almost a greatest hits of both, though. I mean, you get Freddie's greatest hits coming back with piano music, the kids and some of his kills and hypnosil and all that being very reminiscent of old Freddie. And then you get Jason doing what Jason does best. Stuart, I wanted to comment before on what you said about the exposition. When we first met the crowd of teenagers at the house when they were drinking, the girl goes into this monologue about how her boyfriend just up and disappeared. And then it was a horrible, like, kind of like a Phoebe Cates and Gremlins talking about her dad. <laughs> nice right and why, why she hates Santa Claus? Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. And they, instead, they pulled out my father. And then about literally like two minutes later, she goes into this monologue about how her mom was killed. And I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. They're going to have her do a monologue almost every time she's on the screen giving exposition about how her dog was run over <laughs> or whatever. And they didn't go there. They didn't go there. But I was sitting there. I lost my shit when the second time when she did it. I thought it was a brilliant idea. Too bad they didn't do it. I think you bring up that subplot because that one, it's weird. We, we should say that Lori, the main character, is living in the Elm Street house, the very house that Freddy Krueger murdered, murdered all the children, if I'm correct in remembering. The You're not correct. This is just the house that Nancy lived in. Okay. A- and then 
it became. But it begs like, the question. I, I would like to say, if there's this conspiracy in town to make all the children forget about what happened there with Freddy Krueger, why wouldn't they tear that house down? Especially since it looked like ready to be condemned in movies three and on. Yes, indeed. But anyway, I digress. So <laughs> yes, she is living in the house, but she is plagued by a memory um, that she eventually un- unravels is that her father was possibly killing her her mother. Or, what? yeah, was it Freddy? That never paid off. That's the one problem. In fact, I believe we were eventually led to believe that she was being killed in a nightmare, and the father was just standing there trying to help. Holding Is a knife. that what you guys got? Well, they try to make it say at the end that, indeed, her father was trying to save the mother from Freddy. Freddy Krueger killed the mother, and that's why he is spearheading this quarantine the kids who know about Freddy in the mental hospital plan. Mm -hmm. But it was really fucking thin. Yeah. Because it it wasn't clear, and when they talk about the boyfriend in that horrible exposition scene, and then they jump to Jason Ritter in the mental hospital. It doesn't connect the dots right away that this is the kid she was just talking about. No, it's but not. It sh- it, and then when she, he finally goes back to the school and sees her, it becomes apparent. But it really was, I would say, the weakest part of this movie was that subplot about the father. Because also, they misdirect us when he tries to poison her juice— but obviously, at the end of the movie, we realize he was just putting the Lamisil, what's it called? Hypnosil. Hypnosil. Actually, they weren't doing a misdirect. You saw the bottle of Hypnosil next to the juice. Well, I didn't know what Hypnosil was at that time in the movie. Ah. You see, I don't know Nightmare on Elm Street, remember? That's right. So I didn't know. So later on in the movie, it comes back around. Yeah, I think here's the, here's the thing. Uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies in general are based around the premise that parents are awful and they do terrible things and their kids are punished for it. And they wanted to keep that alive in this movie and they do a pretty good job of it. But the truth of the matter is, if there's a dream demon that comes and kills all the children, the parents are not wrong in drugging them with a drug that will prevent them from dreaming. They were doing the right thing. So they had to kind of bend over backwards to make it seem like the parents were really awful in drugging these kids and institutionalizing them and, and that hypnotocell was so bad. But truly, I mean, what other recourse did they have? It was either that or watch all their children be butchered. But by the same token, it was said that they were overdosing the kids on hypnocell, putting them in hypnocell comas. So that's yeah, a little um, bit. Yeah, a few of them were. But like I said, that just felt like an attempt to to make people uh, look bad when, in fact, they were making the right choice. I was fine with the whole parents and police conspiring for the hypnosil plot. But the single plot of the mother being killed by Freddy, that just never – it never made sense. And it wasn't needed. I guess that's my biggest problem with it. We don't need Lori's mom to have been killed by Freddy. We don't need Lori's mom to be dead. Lori could just be the daughter of a single parent for whatever reason. Or mom died in a car crash. I don't give a fuck. But we don't need her mom to have been killed by Freddy in order for this movie to do what this movie does. Nope. I agree. So where the movie gets a lot of fun, but a little bit weird, even for this movie, before we get into the final stuff, is when they break into the hospital to get the pills and... Jay from Jay and Silent Bob is there. Yeah, a and total gets... fucking ripoff. Total. Yeah. I was so happy to see him cut in half, though, because I hate Jason Mewes. 
and he gets possessed by Freddy in the real world. Now, my big problem with this is, and I also want to talk about the best friend's death a little while later if we have a chance, but here he gets possessed by Freddy, and later Freddy comes in the real world. How the hell is it possible for Freddy Krueger to come in the real world? Doesn't he only exist in dreams? That was, again, established in part one. At the end of part one, Nancy grabs onto him and wakes up, bringing him into the real world. So this is original Elm Street lore. She brings in his hat, much like Laurie brings in his ear. Nancy starts off and wakes up with his hat and goes, I brought this from my dream. And Mm -hmm. later on brings all of Freddy into the real world because Freddy is vulnerable in the real world and he's completely in control in the dream world. It's done in part one, it's done in part six, it's done here, it's tired actually. (laughs) Okay, I forgot that then, so you just brought it up. But I don't understand then how he got possessed. How did he get possessed in the hospital? Pot smoke. Pot smoke. Yes, I know. I I think it's meant to believe Freddy appears to him as the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. I got that reference, yeah. A whole hookah into his face, and thus he is sort of awake and asleep at the same time. Is that what you got? I mean, I was grabbing at straw. Yeah. I couldn't see the connection between the Alice in Wonderland reference and how he got possessed, but that makes sense to me now that you explained it. You know, they're, they're doing a dance here because, no, if Jason exists in the real world and Freddy exists in dreams, then, no, they're never going to get together. But I think the movie did well with trying to bridge that untenable chasm, and I think that it made it more exciting and a, a little bit more scary. In, in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, once the characters wake up, you know that they're safe. In this movie, they just got to deal with something else. They're no, no more safe in the real world than they are in the dreams. That's and that very was true. kind of fun about this one. And that's, and that's exactly what I think the best kill in the movie was for me, even though all other ones we talked about were fun, is that girl, I guess it was in the silo, and Freddy is taking her to town in the dream world. And just as he's about to kill her, Jason kills her in the real world, and Freddy's pissed. Now, you knew that was going to happen. You obviously knew that was going to happen. But the way it played out was so much fun. And on top of that, of course, Jason flicks the Dayglow Raver Kid off like a, like a highlight ball. That Dayglow Raver Kid? When we saw this in theaters, my wife and I were laughing our butts off about the guy covered in Dayglow sticks. And we noticed him as a background character. When he became a rapist... He wasn't just an extra. He was actually a character, and then Jason, yeah, fucks him up. Yeah, and it was a really fun kill for them to be combined. So based on that, Freddy had to take him out, and the way they got Jason into the dream world, and then then I guess the way they got Freddy into Jason's world, was really, really clever. And I felt it really was, again, believable. It was a lot of fun how they did that, because Jason in the dream world Man, was he outmatched. It was amazing. Well, he was outmatched, but I dare say he's the ultimate dream warrior to call back to part three because Freddy would have killed 18 kids in what Jason takes. The fact that the rule is Freddy kills you in your dream, you're dead for real. And Jason just keeps taking it and taking it, and he gives it almost as good as he takes even in the dream. There was one interesting thing when Freddy had Jason trembling on the floor. First of all, it again retcons part eight in that Jason was a deformed child. But now here we see Jason didn't just drown because he was out for a swim, but he was practically murdered by his bully campmates. 
Actually, his face was deformed like we saw it in what? Part one? Yeah, part one originally. And that was interesting that... Again, it was kind of funny how the counselors were blatantly ignoring him, but I thought that was just the dream sequence part of it. But you could really see that, remember we talked about in the first episode of the series, where the hell was his mother? If his kid was special needs, why wasn't his mother around more? But these kids were really picking on this Jason, so you're they calling it a They threw him murder. in the lake. I mean, yeah. they, they killed him. He was murdered. Amazing. And that's a very interesting twist to it all, because instead of this whole time he's been avenging his mother, now he's avenging himself. Although I, I would argue we, what we are seeing is, is a dream remembrance. So how much of that is the literal truth and how much of that is the way that Jason remembers it and interprets it, it's uh, in question. I just found it to be very interesting, and I, I guess I took it very literally. I don't think Jason is very imaginative that he's creating persecution complexes while living alone <laughs> in his cabin talking to his mom's decapitated head. I figure this is Jason's kind of like an animal, and I don't think he's shading the truth. Although that scene, it's in the same take, that scene, Freddy pops up in it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nightmare that Freddy is part of. It's Laurie witnessing it. Laurie enters Jason's dream. Although it was funny because I was like, yeah, if the kids are throwing him in the lake and killing him, what was the whole, the counselors are making love line from part one? And then you see, well, they're making love right there outdoors in broad daylight. Well, again, I thought that was a dream aspect of it. I took the kids murdering Jason, as you put it, to be the literal part of the sequence, which obviously the whole thing was a dream. Yeah, I took that the same way. I knew that the counselors on the deck weren't, you know, literally. Weren't really fornicating right there where the kids are, right? Otherwise, that's a whole different type of camp. The only time in this movie we see Freddy kill anybody, though, is the best friend in his home. And what's notable about that is, of course, for me, the only thing notable besides the awesome glove mark across the face, we're not going to go too much into Freddy here, but was Scott Farkas, was in the bathtub. Who the fuck is Scott Farkas? He has yellow eyes from a Christmas story. Oh, God, I just thought that guy, all I could keep going is that guy has a weird resemblance to Danny Bonaduce. That's what I was thinking, too. He looked like someone that I knew, but I couldn't place who it was. Who was he? In a Christmas story, the bully who has yellow eyes. And he follows Ralphie. And he's the big guy with the raccoon hat on, the coonskin cap. Okay. The Christmas yeah, story. yeah. Yeah. He's, that's the same actor. And the whole time, I'm like, hey, look. Scott Farkas! But it was a really kind of fun scene to see a Nightmare on Elm Street kind of kill, and then you see all these great Jason kills, and so when you get a chance to see that, as Arnie mentioned, it's only one the one-time kill, I really got a feeling that, wow, those Nightmare movies must be really fun to watch, because they must be really creepy and really spooky, and actually scary, because one of the things I was surprised about while watching this entire Friday the 13th series is, it really isn't that scary all that much. It's fun to watch and interesting, and it's kind of creepy here and there, but from one scene in this movie, I got the impression that the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series was just really like a mind-bending, creepy, anything-can-happen kind of, really-can-fuck-your-shit-up kind of thing. Is that true? This is why I'm looking forward to the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Because Freddy's dream come true was CGI. When all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies were made, one through seven, CGI was not available. 
and it was all practicals. And remember how you said the effects look like shit in the in the flashbacks? Yeah, they yeah. look like shit. <laughs> oh, okay. And so but... it's a great concept, but the fact is, in this movie, is the first time the Freddy concept is truly realized as what it could be. The closest it comes again is in part three, although there's some good kills in four and five and two. No, no, I take back two, two, no. But in four and five, there are some decent attempts to do what was done here. The remake and giving giving Freddy a true dreamscape in which he can work, that is going to be something. So why don't we talk about, I guess, the two showdowns between Freddy and Jason. But my big question here is, you said earlier, because I had no idea, that Elm Street is in Ohio. Springwood, Ohio. Then how the hell did they get to New Jersey? A five-hour drive through Pennsylvania. It's a longer drive than five hours, I think, isn't it? And it's through the mountains. Because Jason walked to Elm Street, right? Or did Freddy just pop, plop him there? I think Jason walked, but we don't know how long it took. It may have taken him a month. <laughs> so your guys are okay that these kids can drive to Crystal Lake within a reasonable time frame? I, no, not really. It's a glaring plot hole. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I have to accept that because I have to accept that they have to end up at Crystal Lake and at Springwood. I mean, they have to do both. It took a long... And they had no license plates on that van because I was wondering like crazy where the heck Elm Street was because they didn't tell you where it was in, uh, in the movie. There's no real reason why they have to go there. They just have to go there because the convention tells them they have to do it. it and I want to them to. Both. And yeah, don't you want exactly. and don't you want them there? Yeah, I want them there too. And that's you the, and got that's to get them there. And it was great they did. I thought it was really fun. I just thought it was just like gosh, couldn't they travel overnight at least? <laughs> was there any reason given in the movie because if so I missed it? Why the kids decide that well we've got these two serial killers, we need to stick them against each other so they're not just both killing us. But why did they go to Crystal Lake? I never got that. Why didn't they just go to a they, room? They do, they do actually say that. Lori says that if Jason wins the big battle, that he will be in his element and he will stay there because they describe him as a character that haunts Crystal Lake. Clearly, they didn't see Friday the 13th, 8 or 10. <laughs> I got to um, say, though, that does make more sense to make Jason more of a campfire story, someone who haunts the lake, than someone who just is a mad dog killer who will kill everyone in space in Manhattan. Okay, noted. So they, they go to the lake, and they have this great battle with Freddy in the real world. Now, you guys said Freddy can be hurt in the real world, but he took a beating and kept on ticking for a long time. Well, that is one of the downsides of the Nightmare on Elm Street series in general, is that that happens every time, is he's still semi-superhuman. And what it, I think, is supposed to do is mindfuck you and go, well, is he really in the real world, or are we still in the dream? Which is what I think the last scene of the movie kind of says. Right. No one would want to see a movie in which... Jason beats up on an old burned up man. <laughs> they got to give him his power. They both got to have what they got in order to bring it and see who's better. But my question would be is it, when the whole final battle is over, is there a declared victor? No. Yes. Really? I would argue that there really isn't. I agree. I would say that there is, because when I went into the movie, I, I was reading Fangoria, and the director said, when you walk out of this movie, there is a clear winner. And so I went in saying, all right, let's see how clear it is. And I thought it was pretty damn clear 
Jason wins. I did not get that at all. I love that Jason killed Freddy for the final blow with Freddy's own glove. And I love that Freddy hacked the shit out of Jason with the machete. I thought that was really cool. And, and, and sent it him down to the lake. They took the whole uh, canard from part six, and they, he's back in the lake again. Yep, and it's really cool. And I love that Freddy cut off Jason's fingers. Great move. But I have to say, I thought it was a stinking draw. Because at the end there, Freddy hacks Jason with a machete. He falls in the lake. Then he comes out of the lake like he often does and stabs Freddy with the glove. And then Freddy falls. Oh, wait. He cuts his head off. No. Who cuts his head no, off? Yeah, Lori cuts Freddy's head off. Right. Okay. So. Right. so Fre- and then Jason, just fatigued, sinks. I see. So Jason gives the final blow to Freddy, which allows Lori to cut his head off. Yes. And that's what makes you think that Jason wins because he gets the last blow. No, what makes me think Jason wins is the very last scene where Jason's walking out of the lake. Jason's fine, and he's carrying Freddy's decapitated head. Uh One of these two is able to kill again. But see, Arnie, that could have been a dream. Well, it all could have been a dream. Well, no, 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 no. That whole imagery felt like it was a dream, and that Freddy was still alive made me think that, aha, this is a dream of Jason who is still in the bottom of the lake. Oh, I didn't get that. I just love the fact that he walked out of the lake, is palming Freddy's head, and then Freddy winks <laughs> to the camera. I thought it was freaking great. I thought it was a great... But he had his fingers again. No, he didn't. It couldn't be real. No, he had no fingers. He had no fingers. How did he have Freddy's head? He was palming it like a basketball. Exactly. Oh, you're right, he was. Yeah. Now, that wink, though, it bothers me. I can't decide if the wink is, I'm not dead, where there's going to be a sequel, or if it's, that's all, folks. I loved it. I thought it was funny. It was great. It's a joke. It's funny. It was a wink to concede that Freddy wasn't done yet. Yes, exactly. And that thus there is a draw and this battle is not over. Stuart and I saw and the same that, thing, but I could see where you're going with your theory, Arnie. But I think I saw the same I, thing. I, if it's what you the winner saw, of Freddy versus Jason is Lori. <laughs> I don't know. I think the winner of Freddy versus Jason is us because it's a kick-ass movie. It's a really great movie. I had a really great time. We, did, we haven't really talked about the fights. The fights in this movie are tremendous. And here's the problem with any movie where you have two nemeses or two people coming together is sometimes it goes on for so long that when the fight is over, you're like, fucking end it. And sometimes the fight is so truncated or so one-sided that you don't feel that it got its due. This fight went on, but it kept changing it. I swear to God, the scene where Freddy is pulled into the real world in a burning house and he sees Jason and he goes at Jason and Jason goes at him and the music comes up and it's playing some loud heavy metal music. Yeah, it may be taken a play again out of the WWE playbook, but that scene really works for me and it pulls me in and it's like being at a rock concert of gore. And from that point on, I'm just with it. And the fact that they're in a construction zone, what's being built, I don't give a fuck. Let's see them fight. Yeah. <laughs> They're using construction equipment. Great. There's construction. They're building another house at Crystal Lake. Good. I'm with it. Because at that point, I don't care anymore. I'm on a action high. And at the Crystal Lake, they had that great fight. And they have the oxygen tanks, which honestly was weird that they were there. But I thought they used them really well to get Freddy to have an advantage over Jason in the real world. He used his brain and knocked him silly with those tanks. I thought that was really cool, too. 
Yeah, it was way over the top, but yes. you know, who didn't enjoy it? I mean, exactly. It was funny. Yeah, it was. It was everything you wanted. It was Freddie being Freddie and Jason being Jason, and it really played to both of their strengths. And I'm glad they toned down the Freddie one-liners. He had some, like man the torpedoes, but it wasn't yuckster. I'm doing stand-up. Freddy. No, I agree. They brought it back to scarier Freddy. And when they tried to make him funny, I actually thought that was, those were usually pretty bad. I mean, how sweet, dark meat. Yes, Kelly Rowland of Destiny's Child, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So it's time to ask Arnie Stewart, do you recommend Freddy vs. Jason? I do. I actually was surprised. I saw it when it came out in theaters, and I'm like, oh boy, this is ridiculous. And I wouldn't really allow myself to enjoy it. But having this come off the whole series and seeing how well they distilled Friday the 13th to its bare-bones essence and fused it with what I remember about Nightmare on Elm Street, I, I really feel like they did a great job of making a really trashy, fun time. You know, sometimes when these pairing ups happen, I don't like it because I feel like it's a disgrace to the source material. Aliens versus Predator. Yes. Aliens versus Predator. Alien is one of my favorite series. And for that to be turned into a junkyard dog fight, it just didn't work for me. But seeing these two characters go at it, it really felt right. It felt it felt right on. I couldn't agree more. Like Stuart said earlier, This is the best Jason movie there is. And it may be the best Freddy movie there is. And you don't even have to have seen the, what was it be, 17 movies of backstory that leads to this one? Because they catch you up on it and it's enough in the cultural zeitgeist that you can just walk into this movie and have a kick-ass time. And the kids are passable and the action is outrageous and the over-the-top and some amazing pyrotechnics. This movie's got it all. Now, again, not knowing Nightmare on Elm Street very well, I have to say I had a blast watching this anyway, and I thought it was a really fun Jason movie. I thought he got some great moments for himself, and I loved the battle with Freddy. So I recommend it as well. It's a great way to end the retrospective series. Because at this point, Arnie, I don't think we have a retrospective anymore. We have one more episode left that we're going to talk about, and we're finally here, the 2009 Michael Bay remake. Thank you guys for joining us, and I guess we'll reconvene when we see Friday the 13th. Bringing us back to the beginning. (laughs) There's something that has a nice symmetry to it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th retrospective. We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week, up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did. If you did. If you did. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.